And good evening, Bernie. Thank you so much for joining us at Wolfie's Talks. Thanks for taking the time. Thank you for having me. So let's see what we're going to talk about. Very good. Um, I was very excited when, when you agreed to come on the show because you, you were always somebody I was following. Uh, we came 2002, we came to Dubai, and, and I, I thought always you were a very elegant rider on the bike. I think the style you were riding, I think the way you were handling the peloton in a way uh, was always very impressive. And I think you, you had, a, as I said, just a good style, uh, how you were riding the bike. You were a professional for 19 years. You had four Giro Italias, you had 12 Tour de France. Uh, you rode in total about 60,000 kilometers only in these two events combined. Uh, you did 17 times Paris-Roubaix. I calculated as well, it's about 4,420 kilometers, which is just unbelievable. You won uh, again Belvigen 2010. So I think just an unbelievable, unbelievable career. Yeah, not, not many wins, but I had nice ones. And yeah, I think also Tour de Suisse, I always calculate in there to Tour de Suisse stages and managed to have the golden jersey back in the day. The only problem was the next day was the time trial and some some Jan Ulrich just showed me how it's done. <laughs> but I, I, I could wear the, the, the golden jersey in Tour de Suisse too and it was, was good. But you mentioned it. I mean, uh, I did some also some calculations with the Tour de France and... Uh, with Paris-Roubaix, I pretty much spent one year in France <laughs> of my life. So, and some holidays too, but it, that's just tour and, and Roubaix. But that's uh, when I retired, I was like, time flies. And it's like, if you imagine you spend a year there in 19 years of your career. <laughs> we put a few pictures together just to give people a bit of a feeling what it looks like, what you see on, on your regular day in the office. Um, we're just going to show it. it's a minute clip and I hope it works and I get Will to, to take the screen now. Heel ver. Even zitten en bijschakelen. Gilbert die uh, komt nu mee met de IJssel. IJssel die er wel van ver uitkomt. Van Marken die ook nog altijd gaat meesplitten. Van Marken die Jan Dori IJssel nog wil gaan uh, bedreigen. Maar het is wel IJssel die sterk is. IJssel die uh, hier gaat winnen. IJssel als Oostenrijker wint Gent Wevelgem. Het is Van Marken die tweede is. En Gilbert die derde is. Wat heeft die Van Marken een fantastische wedstrijd gereden. Maar IJssel wint wel Gent Wevelgem. <laughs> Thanks for that. Good memory. <laughs> it's always nice to see when we play these clips or speak about the Korea, um, how the faces change of the people and they really get excited. And I think it's just, it's unbelievable. Yeah, what what you have what you have done. Yeah, I mean, especially with the onboard uh, onboard footage and everything. You know, you you try to figure out which stage it was, and then 
it's like uh, I remember that stage we didn't do really well, but uh, uh, I, I re it's like the funny thing of cyclists always remember those days, like it happened yesterday, even if it's many years ago, because uh, I remember that day with uh, what uh, with Max Malscheid, and he was bouncing into me and I was bouncing into him, hands on the handlebars, so all fair and square. But it, it was just like, I tried to move him, but he's uh, like two meters tall or something and weighs a little bit more than me. And there was no way to move him out of the way. And, and, but we had, we had good fun there. Just not the result we hoped for. But you're very, very good friends with, with Mark Cavendish as well. Yeah? And obviously you did a lot for his career. And, and I, I found a few words and I thought it was nice to maybe read this out because I thought it was just a nice... Uh, thing from him to say and he said I think Bernie Eisel had made a massive difference as well having Bernie back just everything before the sprint the whole day even in the bedroom he just keeps me on on the level he keeps my energy down that definitely helps we are best friends we really are he's my best friend there's never any jealousy we argue like a husband and a wife but five minutes later we have just moved on we don't even have to apologize it's one of those old pros he knows how to move around the peloton. He knows where to be, when and where. And so I don't have to say it. It's not like to follow him because I don't know. I can trust where he's going. That's nice. I can be relaxed. It gives me so much more energy at the end of this for the sprinting. I thought it was very, very nice for him, I think. And it really describes what we see as well when you're watching the races, how you just go through the peloton, you find your way and you bring Mark to the, to the finish line. Yeah, it definitely was uh, the golden days of HTC and everything. You know, we we just decided where we want to sit. And then uh, later on or something, we had to also mix in a little bit. And then uh, you had to know what, what's coming. And, you know, my job was to, to read the race and have like a pretty much Garmin and Maps existed already, but not the way we know it now and even radio communication wasn't the best and still not <laughs> it's still it's still pretty bad and so this is just an, a thing because when people think radios and team cars decide races it's definitely not because most of the time you have no idea what the team car says or what you try to tell him because it's such a bad connection but it's just a sidestep but the thing was like for me was like to to know uh to be out of trouble and having him and Mark Renshaw safe on the wheel and uh, not spending energy. And that would, you had to know when, when, the, when the turn is coming and not by 50 meters, but you had to know, okay, there's something trickier coming, a smaller road or something or open area. So that was the good old days when you really could make a difference when you knew a little bit about the area and, and yeah, you did your homework and, read the, the road book well <laughs> okay you know and you, you're speaking about your role as a road captain and i think it was very nicely uh, shown in this movie chasing legends with hdc and it's i have to say it's i mentioned so many times it's one of my all-time favorite movies and it really shows the the whole situation in the peloton quite nice and i you, you you said something about your role and you said i have not to care about anybody else i just to care about what happens on the road you're going to sacrifice a lot of people and they're supposed to be friends or work colleagues. And you're going to have to give them something to do that's not going to please them and ruin their day, basically. That's what apparently you said uh, about your role as a, a road captain. 
it, it, it definitely is. I mean, you, you, you do it on purpose. That's the thing. You, you, you go, you go out there and uh, you do things just one second. Somebody's coming in. So that's the, also when you work from home, <laughs> people come in. Uh, I just sort of say. <laughs> that's good. <laughs> Sorry for that. But no, that's homework. I'm getting used to it. <laughs> and uh, no, the do it's you not go out there to ruin the, your day, the day, but if there you you come into the final or something or the approach of a smaller road, and the only thing you you have in your mind is to keep your guys to bring them in there first or at the front, and let's put it this way: if you can make it harder for the other teams, you will do it mm-hmm. in a fair way but you you definitely and sometimes you're going to be in the way on purpose and or you let sometimes we see it on the side of the road you close one side so that only your team has space so you can only get passed by on the other side from a team mm-hmm. and then you always see somebody sneaking through on the on the gravel or through the grass already and it's dangerous but i always made sure okay one guy is fine but his team will never follow because it's too dangerous. So then you you already uh, had the advantage because you you weakened them. They weakened themselves because you let one guy through or two, but the leader had to stow back there. So he lost two helpers because they were in the mix somewhere, mm-hmm. and they a few k's later they had to move back anyway, or we 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 didn't let them out anymore. So it's always like a, a lot of tactics in in there and how you can make the life a little bit harder and easier for yourself. <laughs> but how do you gain the trust that obviously you make the call and you said, listen, we're going now. And I it was, again, in this movie, it was extremely well uh, presented. And you said, listen, all everyone to the front and then you just smash everyone to pieces and, and you make that call. How do you build the trust with your team? So when, when you say go guys, that everyone follows your lead as a road captain? Uh, I think it's uh, a natural thing. For, for somebody and but at the same time you you grow you grow in into that situation i mean we have seen it with uh, also with team leaders is uh, a big surprise in his first uh, grand tour or something but he's not a leader yet he's following wheels and he's super strong but then the year after he's like he gets a team build around him and he knows okay i also have to step up i have to to tell them what they have to do. They have to understand me. I have to start understanding them. So it's, I think it's always a, uh, takes sometimes years to really build such a team together. But most of the time you get uh, three weeks <laughs> to, to, to really get everybody on board to do what's to do. And so when it comes back, you know, it's, I'm loud, I'm vocal. So, and sometimes, uh, People were like, okay, I better do it now. Otherwise, it's getting even louder. So it, it's it's also the other way. But we have to be honest. Uh, it's a professional sport. And that's how we always approach the um, a team. It's like even an inside team. We had a really good relationship with with, with all of them. It's like when I look back, they're like a uh, uh, great understanding for, of each other, even now. And uh, not best mates with everybody, but really good relationships and then if he gets loud one day and if you the other guy has a bad day he probably 
doesn't take it as uh, he would if he has a good day, but half an hour later it's forgotten or something. And especially when you win so much, you know, it's uh, it's it's also easier to to choke up that somebody yelled or screamed in in some circumstances. But the other thing was like the the goal, the good days with HTC, we were like most of the days pretty much untouchable. So we could we, we could decide what we do and uh, and but also thanks to the guys we had. I mean, like when when you have like Michael Rogers, George Hinkerpie. I mean, we also had Peter Felitz, who was like uh, second in the world, a climber, and he was our in our leadout and did a brilliant job. Tony Martin, who was also in a in your video chat before. I mean, it's just bad grubs, you know, world champion time trial. So if you if you just put them at the front, it's it's easy. <laughs> <laughs> I was once in a team car following the Dubai tour, and I think it was just one of the first stages. And I, I saw some of the younger riders going to the front, and it just made it all crazy, and it was all racing all over the street. And then you rode up to them, and you had some nice words with them, which I can't repeat because we otherwise we can't show it everywhere. And then uh, everything come back, and, and then you. You just managed it quickly and then I think they, they all organized it back. So it was quite interesting how you had the, the presence again uh, in, in, the, in the team uh, to show everyone in the peloton that this is not the right time to go crazy at the beginning of a race. Yeah, we, we tried. I mean, uh, it's also tactics, you know. It's uh, uh, Sometimes it, we decided who we let in, in, to go in the breakaway because you make your life so much easier already yeah. in the stage. To bring them back you know if he we knew when thomas Fuckler wants to go on a break he's going in a break we just had to make sure that the guys he's going with are not the strongest because otherwise you better don't chase anymore and so you, you always had to decide but uh i always have to be i think from my side side i have to say i was always trying to stay fair to them and giving them a point why it's useless to go in a break today or something or why are you chasing your own teammates stuff like that but i also remember the days with uh, mario cipollini and i was also working for gcn and eurosport now on some research about the giro in the last 50 years and and chip was some he was a different character i mean he really ruled the peloton and he said nobody attacks nobody attacked and <laughs> you know it's gonna be a picnic tour you know 32 average and and the last last hour you just had to fasten your seatbelt and you were like here we go <laughs> very good, very good. He, he was a couple of times in dubai and he's just an unbelievable he's tall and big now yeah he looks more like a bodybuilder than a, a cyclist and you see him riding without a shirt uh, all the time now yeah i can imagine if he says don't go yeah, you better you better do that. Yeah, and you keep it quiet until he has his uh, sprint train lined up. Very good, very good. I want to take you back a bit to the beginning of, of uh, cycling. So, what was your first contact with the sport, and who inspired you to to start racing? Uh, it was easy for me. You know, my brother is nine years older, and he, by just some coincidence, he came he found cycling as a passion and so when he he started when he was 14 so i was very 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 little and so everything i saw was him going for a training ride and then racing so for me it was i think uh, with six i did my first bmx race and but 
there was not even BMX tracks back there, I think. Not, <laughs> definitely not where I lived. So it was more like a, a Baku thing. And yeah, always, uh, I'm also I have to say, I'm lucky that I found cycling as my, my passion because I can't play soccer, I can't play tennis. Um, it's uh, give me a ball and I'm going to hurt myself. And so cycling was definitely the, the best choice. Who was in your head when you were racing maybe against your brother? You had any rider you were inspired? Any Mario Cipollini or, or who was the guy in your head when you were growing up? It was definitely uh, Miguel Indurain, so Indurain. quick make. So Indurain was definitely, I mean, the style and everything and how he dominated the uh, racing back in the day and with his size. And for me, it was, I think, uh, I was also one of the first jerseys I bought was the Banesta jersey. And mm -hmm. with my own first money, I think, with some prize money, I, I just bought a big winter jacket or a Banesta winter jacket. Still have it. <laughs> and... So he definitely inspired me as like a, a role model. Never got close to his watts probably he produced. Yes. He was just a great, great character in cycling. Was there a bicycle you wanted to have as a little boy and you couldn't afford? Was there some dream bike? Uh, not, not really. I mean, I was uh, always looking for different bikes, but uh, it's... Uh, I remember my, I think my passion, my dream was later was definitely with Pinarello when I got my, my first sponsored bike, completely sponsored bike. Uh, I received the bike. So I, I, I started racing on my, the old bike of my brother that was mm -hmm. 10 years or something old, still won bike races on it. And, and, but later it's like uh, Pinarello is definitely something I remember from the beginning there because uh, when I was, uh, yeah, I was not even 17, I was 16 when I started racing in Italy in an Italian junior team. And they gave me not just the equipment, the whole bike and everything. And I uh, still see it in front of me, bright yellow <laughs> with golden rims. So uh, it, it, it was cool. Uh, so this is definitely what I, what I remember. And from then, yeah, never had to worry about the bike again. Very good. Very good. And when you come home from these uh, long stages and you come home to Austria, uh, when you come to see your mom and your family, what, what is the, the the dish you want to have prepared from your mom? Um, uh, it's a good question. Definitely a good Wiener Schnitzel. You, you can't go wrong. <laughs> Nothing beats a good Wiener Schnitzel. That's good. <laughs> Do you feel that you have a lot of talent uh, which made you so successful? Or is it rather that you had to work hard, uh, harder maybe than others uh, to, to get the results? I was definitely talented to some point and and that helped me a lot and but also I think for the real breakthrough it also stopped me because it came everything a little bit too easy when you're too talented and you don't have to work so hard for things come easy and you forget how much work it's actually behind and this is also when I have uh, the big guys, like the, the really, really strong ones who keep repeating their success year by year, they are for me the the real deal because mm -hmm. you can always have a good season and you come up with a great result and then the money starts flowing and he's going to be the the next one who's going to be in the podium in a tour. But to repeat that the year after, then then you see the, the real character. And, and for me, the, 
guys like Chris Broom and these guys to to repeat that and repeat that and mm-hmm. doing all the media stuff, sponsor stuff, and still being the best bike rider out there. That's what sets them apart from from the rest, from people like me. Yes. But I also have to say that because I said talent and training, I always trained and had my good results. But the, the days with working with Tim Carrison at uh, Sky, uh, I always thought I trained hard, but then they really showed me what it means to, to, to train and how much your body actually can suffer in training, mm-hmm. what makes you better in racing. That I had to learn when I was way above 30. Mm-hmm. Okay, it's interesting. I just wanted to ask this next question is, what has changed? Obviously, you have seen 19 years in your pro career. What has changed from the beginnings to now? What do you think is really the, the biggest improvement? Is it training? Is it the material? How has the peloton changed? <laughs> How has the peloton changed? Uh, the old guys would always say that it's crazy now because the youngsters don't listen. <laughs> from being away from it a little bit by now, I already last year, I realized, okay, we were the same. You know, when you're young, young, dumb and hungry, you just do things you shouldn't do. And somebody yells at you. And back there, there was somebody who told you, don't do it. Some in a nice way, some in a not so nice way. And, but you listened. And then we had a, a long, quite a, like a few years when, when you really tried to teach the young guys something, they were not just not listening. They were like, I got here. That's my spot. Fair play, but it was a difficult time, but it's a completely different, again, the last five years, they, it's a completely different generation, again, that uh, joined the, the Peloton. They are really uh, focused, and I think that brings also the, the training and everything. Mm-hmm. In, back in the day, you you trained, you had talent, and you with some luck, you turned pro. And But nobody knew... There was prospect and hope he's going to turn into a great bike rider. But nowadays, you pretty much can say with the testing and everything and uh, the numbers he produces in training, you you can say, yeah, he's going to be good. Or, yeah, he's, he's not going to make it. And that's, I think, uh, what will shorten the careers of most of the riders who join the pro peloton in the next 10 years. Because you in every sport, you see it, they come and they are like the a class uh, athlete. They know everything and he's transparent and you pretty much can calculate how far he could go into the rankings. Mm-hmm. Bit of a sad thing, but at the same time, you know, there's uh, always some, some with a good surprise in it. But training and everything definitely uh, changed the sport. Material less, that was more... Uh, the late yeah around 2010 when we could when you could make a difference with the material nowadays it's it's similar it's marginal really marginal like tiny tiny pieces you can very cool very cool what changes when you put on a helmet when you put you you get ready for the race and you put on your helmet is the person quite different from the regular bernie eisel when you're on the bike um Probably not. I think uh, there's riders, they're completely different from home and on racing. But uh, for me, I realized at some point is like in cycling, 
the only time because I got bored in cycling. It's like uh, if if I was not hundred percent there, I would crash or mm. just look around and then crash, you know, and and just not enjoying it. But then I realized if I, I really focus on even if it's a boring stage or whatever, mm. uh, and just start thinking what could happen, what you know, and just also thinking about the next stages and then yeah, I kept the concentration on it and time flew and we were already at the finish. And I think that helped me a lot to, to learn more and, but also to enjoy the, the racing again. Mm -hmm. But obviously you, you're in charge as well or as a road captain as well for the other riders. So you can't only focus on yourself. So is this something where you feel like you had 50% of your capacity into the, into the organization of the team and then the rest was for yourself? Or how did you manage that? Uh, It, when I look back, it was sometimes it was like a hundred percent just for the team, mm -hmm. and you know, you with with good days when you had like a GC leader and then picking up Kev somewhere, so you were riding at the front for in the mountain for for your GC leader, and then you went on the side of the road and heard over the radio, okay, Kev is getting in trouble now, and you move back and you just uh, moved on from there, just different job still mm -hmm. riding at the front and but many times it was literally when you were like uh especially in a grand tour in a one-day race you probably pulled out or you just thought okay i'll make it to the finish somehow but in the grand tour it's always the time limit and when you sacrifice yourself a hundred percent and then you realize oh it's still 70 k's to go and then absolutely empty mm -hmm. so there was some tough moments also when Kev and I were both on the limits completely and we, we, we had some few arguments going on because the sugar wasn't high enough. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's very cool. I can imagine, yeah, if you know you have to make the time limit, if you want to make it to Paris and you know, uh, and, and he said you have to argue and you have to fight a little bit, but then after the race, everything is good again. So once you go in and go to your room, uh, that's, that's all sorted out. That's cool. Yeah, we. I mean, he was always like this. I mean, we did we did climbs when he was uh, Tourmalet. Like we mentioned it a few times. He's on the left side of the road, and I'm on the right side, and there's 10 meters in between us, and we're not talking for three or four k's, you know, because we just we just had a go at each other. But it it's just a natural and normal thing. It happens, and then you it's forgotten. Especially when you when you get to the top, you know, we can make it. And then you can go down the other side and you're like, you can start enjoying downhill again. <laughs> yes. Um, I want to take you back a little bit further in your career to the Vuelta de Cuba 2002. I think that was one of the first uh, races and, and uh, I think one of the special events for you. Can you tell us a bit more about the Vuelta de Cuba 20, uh, 2002? I always dreamed of to go back to Vuelta de Cuba once. Vuelta de Cuba was just uh, a... I wouldn't even call it a bike race. It's it's like an adventure. It's uh, great fun. I mean, we we came there and it's just absolutely great memories. I mean, we started. Uh, it's a long race. I mean, it was 14 days, I think, with uh, with a rest day in, in it and super hard. And but we, I was Puzzato, Filippo Puzzato was there and uh, he won the race. I got second. I threw away a stage because I uh, raised my arm too early and I got. At Sabo Stahl at the finish line from some Cuban rider. So, and uh, 
then I lost the race in GC because they brought only one TT bike, the, or two TT bikes. One was for, was for Petrov and one was for Buzzato. And I had to go on a 32 long uh, time trial without the TT bike. But still, we, we had a, a great fun. And uh, I can always recommend to go to Walter Kube if somebody gets an invite. <laughs> because I, I also remember... Yes. Well, just a quick one. We had uh, Team Wiesenhof, for example. Uh, yeah. That was a German team. And then later on, they were also there with us. And we spent, I don't know, thousands of US dollars on bottled water with Mapai, not to get sick. And and Team Wiesenhof just had a glass of whiskey every night or some schnapps they brought from Germany and also worked. So. <laughs> Very good. A question I had later was, if you had a time machine, would you go forward in time or would you go back? So I think now you want to go back to 2002, to Cuba? Yeah, but just for a holiday <laughs> on the team car. Uh, if I have to say, I, I, I would do it again like I did, but I, to be honest, I don't want to start a, to be a pro, pro bike rider again. It's just too hard. It's If I have to think like, Doing 19 years as a pro again? No way. <laughs> but I also don't want to go further into the future because I'm too old already. <laughs> uh, and then I want to take you obviously to Gen Velvet in 2010. And it was a small group, but it was a very uh, distinct group with George Hinkepi, Seth Bonmark, uh, Philip Zerbea, Daniel Oss, and Jürgen Rollins. I think it was a, this was a, a strong group, and I think it was the last couple of meters. And then uh, Hinkabi went and you uh, took over the sprint and you made it first over the line and you became a legend in Belgium. Um, so can you take us back to that day? Later, I realized how strong I was on, on that day. Because when I won it, I, real, oh, I was a surprise for myself and for everybody. Uh, we went in with uh, not having a real leader in, in the team and we won the race twice before. So we just went in and let's see. Also, the classics campaign that year wasn't great. So we were like, okay, Gen Velvet game is our race. Let's try the best. And everybody gets a free car. And then only watching the recap of Gen Velvet game, because when the research we're doing before uh, bigger races is when you watch the episodes from the years before. Mm -hmm. So you get an understanding of the roads again and where you go, where it's important to be at the front. And when I, then I always tumbled about the 2010 Gen Velvet game. And I was like, I realized while watching how strong I was because uh, in the race, I was, I thought I'm just, you know, kind of victim in this group. But mm -hmm. I, <laughs> I formed the first group. We were 13 riders. And then we always lost a few over the climbs. And then, and it was also that moment, I think 12 Ks to go or something. We had uh, still Oscar Freire in, in the group. So you would have yes. pretty much won. I mean, he would have definitely outsprinted me. And I've seen they had a bit of a discussion back there to go into the line. And I just went half road and just accelerated, not even attacked or something. We just accelerated in a crosswind. And then George Hinkapi took over and he looked over the shoulder and he saw they have like 10 meters, only 10 meters. And, you know, <laughs> you're in Dubai, so you know what, what wind is. And sometimes, from two meters, three meters, 10 meters, and off you go. And that was the same. And uh, that was the, in the, in the sprint, uh, George Hinkapi did kind of perfect lead out for me. He went away too early. And then when I went, uh, 
I, I just remember now when I look up then when I, because I came with overspeed on these wheels, I had to go and I was looked up and I was like 250 meters to go. I was like, oh, that's even too early for me. And I, I think I sprinted till 10 meters after the line because <laughs> I, I could not believe I won it. <laughs> wow. Wow. That's very cool. Fantastic. Um, Tour de France, overall 14 times, just an unbelievable number. 12, of, 12. 12 times, sorry, yes, 12 times. <laughs> and then in 2012, you were in the winning team with Bradley Wiggins. Um, and and how, how was this to be the road captain for this event and then coming out in the winning team? How was that for you? It, it, was, it was one of the greatest memories I have, you know, especially when we rolling into the, the Champs-Élysées in yellow, Bradley wins, leading out Kev, yes. and Kev wins in the World Championship jersey on, on the Champs-Élysées. So you, you couldn't script that normally, and we managed to do it. And but we also remember, especially Mark Cavendish and I, when we we did the Giro before, and then only a small race, uh, a Stair Electra tour in Belgium and Holland, and we we came to Liège where the start was of the Grand Tour, the Tour de France, and we just looked like we were riding for a different team. You know, they were like all the climbers super skinny, and then Kev and I rocked up, and it's not that what we we were fat, but we were just. They, they look differently. <laughs> they just came down from Tenerife and altitude and everything. And now it, it, it was really a, a great time. I and mean, we, we went in with one goal. This was to win the tour with, uh, with Bradley. And winning the stages with Kev was kind of bonus. And we had Edward Boisenhagen helped us. And sometimes Kostan and Siftov. And so it was just a bit of mix and Kev was in good form. But the uh it, the the main goal was to win win the tour with with calf and the good thing was also that uh i was on the latter days i was the team captain when he got went into the mountains it was uh uh mick rogers that took over and so we we had kind of two team captain roles that made it much easier but i also remember that we left poor going into the pyrenees climbs and and it was fireworks from the start and after 20 cases, something going up to Molay from the backside, and and I had, yeah, lo, uh, shoot all my <laughs> my my pistols in in the first 20 case, and then I had to move back a little bit to recover. And I asked Mick Rogers to take over. And then everything settles down. I come back to the front, and it's like, so Mick, how many guys are on the break now? And he's like, 37. And I was like, and I'm like, are you, are you serious? Yeah, but they're not so dangerous. And I'm like, it's 37 riders up the road and I have to chase now. Yep. <laughs> but we managed to bring them back all of it. So we just kept the, the pressure high. And I remember the, the good thing is when you have a big group in a break, they don't all collaborate because there's uh, a mix of some teams have two or three riders and only one is riding because the other two, they save each other for the later in the mountains. And... I think uh, I did not give them more than a minute 30 at the bottom of Tourmalet. And so this is also when the confusion then started. The front is like, they don't let us go. So some riders stopped riding too. So you always can play that game too. You're ready from the beginning if you keep the pressure high. Don't give too many hopes. 
always said as well that the Tour de France obviously is a, is a very aggressive style of riding and you always love the Giro and I think we're very sad to see the Giro uh, stop this year and or being being delayed this year. So what, what are your memories from the Giro? Yeah, I spoke quite a lot about the Giro on GCN and Eurosport now. I mean, the, the Giro is, uh, it's just lovely. And I, I said that it's uh, the Italian word casino, and that means a, a big mess. And that is the Giro sometimes, you know, you, you come to the start and there's not enough parking for the buses or something, but nobody freaks out. It's like everybody's relaxed. So yeah, take your time. Then we start 15 minutes later. So it's also the, the Italian way. And um, and I also have to say that the Giro was always like uh, more, like a bit smaller, but uh, still hard, probably harder than the, the, the Tour de France from, from the stages. Mm-hmm. Tour, it's all, mostly the riders that make it so hard, but the parkour and the, the route is definitely harder in the Giro, especially with the third week. But it, the media is less. And they are also more relaxed. You know, they are not always digging for the extra story. They probably sit down, have a glass of wine, and eat a pizza. And and there's less media around, so it's already they are way more relaxed. And the other thing was also the Italian tifosi. You know, this the, the Italian cycling fan. He knows everything. You know, he and he will always stop you somewhere if he gets a chance. You know, it's like the the guy the guy behind the cafe. In, at the reception, wherever you know, he's he's definitely riding a bike, and uh, doesn't not, not even a girl or man is like they they all ride their bikes and they know how much suffering it is, and there's always a chat and and it, it's always a great feeling to be in Italy. So, no, absolutely, I've been lucky enough to be a couple of times in the Giro Italia, just invited from Castelli and so on. So it is really an unbelievable atmosphere. So if every cycling fan once in your life. Uh, you need to make it down to Italy to, to watch that, that race. Yeah, fantastic. Because um, I also said on, uh, I said on, on, on Eurosport, I also said you would always go to the Italian restaurant and not to the French bistro, no? Yes, that's true. <laughs> you, you mentioned, obviously, we live in Dubai, and obviously Dubai is the city of, of dreams, and we can make a lot of things happen. So if we would say, Bernie, you can, you be the team manager, director sportive, and you can pick your, your crew for the Tour de France 2020, 2021. Um, money, no objective. Uh, you, can, you can pick whoever like. We want to obviously win all the jerseys, so we need the best uh, overall GC rider, the best sprinter, the best young rider, uh, the best lead-out man. So which are the eight riders we have to buy to get them in the team? <laughs> I think you just have to take over Dave Brails for a job. <laughs> just, <laughs> uh, I mean, Team Ineos is pretty much uh, unbeatable at the tour. Even three leaders, Garen Thomas, Chris Froome, and the white jersey with Egan Bernal. So if, if the other two make it up with four, you could even have one, two, three in a podium. Uh, it's Bogace is definitely up there who could who could uh, run for the white jersey or the youngsters jersey in in a few years. Problem is Egan Benal is still there, so <laughs> and yeah, and uh, sprinting wise, if they don't change the rules for the points jersey, uh, it will be Peter Sagan for. Quite some time. So there's not really somebody out there. Um, my guess would be for a few stages would be Elia Viviani for the speed 
Grunewagen. And so we definitely see uh, a new kind of sprinters coming and they will make it up. It's a good question, actually. Who, who, we always played that game in Mapai when, when we turned pro. It's like uh, after dinner conversations, who should we sign for the, for the next years and who would be the guy to have it? We, we really enjoyed that and we're mostly right <laughs> to pick a good team. Very good. What do you think is the next big thing in, in racing? Do you see anything coming, changing? Do you think e-sports, e-cycling Swift is something which we, which we will see more? Definitely. I mean, uh, e-cycling, but we have to separate it from the normal road cycling scene completely because I think it's, uh, uh, it's really special and it's not 100% yet. It's really close. And the virtual world and everything worlds and uh, works, and but it will be a different star kind of riders. You know that uh, it's it's only what per kilogram. So you don't a few tactics, a little bit of team you can ride together, but it is never going to be like road cycling. But it definitely for me it it has its its place. I mean we have seen riders back in the day that one time trials, but he couldn't ride in a bunch. I mean, that's, he could become world champion there and could mm -hmm. make his, uh, his living in the pro peloton and with the traveling and everything, he probably didn't make it because it was all a little bit too much being away, the pressure from the racing. But if you pretty much can stay in your own environment, making your bubble just a little bit smaller, uh, you could probably succeed in a different, different way, still doing what you love the cycling but uh it will be two completely different things i also don't see many of the road cyclists really going into the big success in esports because mm -hmm. it's it is different it, it is it is hard <laughs> i can <laughs> and obviously the whole the whole environment is missing as you said with Tifosi, the fans on the road and everything you sit at home and you're in your pain cave, I think that's a completely different environment now. Yeah, it's changed. Yeah, definitely. But I mean, you still can enjoy it, you know, if it's yeah. uh, and you don't have to travel. Yes. <laughs> Not true. If you look back in your career and you would say uh, 1998 when you started, so 20 years back, um, what would Bernie say to Bernie 20 years ago uh, when you started? Okay, what would you like to have known? What you know now, and you would give it as an advice. Hmm. I think it. What I that somebody should have told me that I probably do twenty years on a bike as a <laughs> pro because I always had that plan in my head that like I'm gonna do this ten years and then I go back to university and just uh, study something and do something completely different. And but. I think it 30 came so quick and mm -hmm. the, all the good success and really the, the fun time. And then I just enjoyed it. So I think somebody should have warned me that I, <laughs> I'm going to enjoy that for 20 years. And I still do, you know, I don't miss the racing. Uh, never going to pin a number on again, but uh, it, it is definitely something if you do it the right way that it's, uh, it changed my life and still does now, you know, it's uh, not even talking about it's paying the bills because that's also what it does. But 
I'm still in, involved in the sport and uh, see the the sport and the, the friends and the, everybody coming around. And now I just can watch it and talk. Can't say that word. <laughs> can talk about it. <laughs> you work for GCN and you work for Eurosport now. Yes, I do. Normally, I would be at the Giro right now and doing uh, on-ground interviews before and after the race with the riders and bits and bobs of uh, what's going on and the Tour, the Tour de France. So hopefully for all of us, you will see me a little bit later, not to see me, but to have the racing on again. You will see me later in, this, in the season again with the racing. And for GCN, it's also, we're doing... Uh, a, really a lot of new things and the new GCN app came out just right before the, the Giro that we're showing also 21, the 21 best stages of the last seven years mm -hmm. and with polls and everything interactive and uh, virtual studio so really really good stuff so we're trying also to that because it's one company uh, and to bring it the cycling uh to the next level, because we are still talking about uh, cycling broadcasting is pretty much the same in 1960 till it's now, you know, it's yes. uh, helicopter flying, image, talking about judges and everything, but it, there is much more happening and you just have to bring it, bring it together. But I think they do an amazing work. I think GCN, and I, I'm looking back at the beginning when I met the gentleman who was uh, behind the whole thing in, in in Taipei and on the flight back, we were sitting next to each other um, and it was very interesting to speak to them. And I think the education and what you've done over the past years to make people understand the sport and show them and guide them, is just an unbelievable uh, work. So I really congratulations for everything they've done. And, and I'm looking really forward to get all the insights uh, from you being, being on the site here speaking. I have to also admit, I, when I joined, I, I had no idea how big it is, but you pretty much, uh, also for the Dubai is an international place. You, you, it's pretty much in every country. You now you can, uh, you have Japan, you have France, Spain. So you have all languages. Italians doing a great job on GCN mm -hmm. Italia and Germany was just launched this year. So it, it's good stuff. And especially, you know, if it's in your own, own language and you know, the guys, it's, it's, Good entertainment every day. Very good. And and you were always quite active as well when it comes to the UCI and I think the player and the riders commission. Uh, if, if you had a chance now, what do you think should change to make cycling to the next level and make it more attractive for people to watch the race? Um, I think uh, we have to, I mean, we, we show the Tour de France now everyday life from kilometer zero. We even show a neutral start to the finish. And I don't know many guys who would watch, actually who would watch it or have the time, you know, who has time to take three weeks holiday to watch the Tour de France from kilometer zero to the finish. You know, it, it, it is great to have everything uh, recorded, but I don't see them. I mean, most of the guys are, are working, um, People just go to work and also do more sports. So that's what we have seen in the last 10 years too, is like you, you enjoy the riding or any other sport and then kind of watch the, the summary of what happened and you get updated on. So something 
to combine stuff the way you know the the life is still one piece but also the having the general information all the time that is pretty much uh i would say tailored for yourself and where you don't have to go through through twitter or some uh updates or every uh, two minutes to to see what <laughs> what you have missed and because uh, there's definitely a lot of people who sit at work and just scrolling down all the time <laughs> if they missed out on something and this is and i think uh in general the stages have to be a little bit shorter but also the transfers because we always talk about the tour and all those races uh and the riders are not available for interviews and stuff it's different if you play 90 minutes and of course, the preparation and everything, it is a three hour, four hours where, where you're busy, but it, that's including with rest and everything. And they have time to do so, social media and other stuff uh, and interviews. But if you uh, get up at 8.30 in the morning, latest by 11, you sit on the bus and then you have an hour, an hour and a half to the start, sometimes two hours, then you race for four hours at least. And by the time you get to the hotel, it's eight. Yes. And the only thing you've done, you've been pretty much in your cycling kit or and sometimes, you know, it's pre pretty much no time to call family. So if that would be a little bit more compressed in the stages, it would be probably a little bit more attractive and uh, even the flat, flat days, you know, because you could imagine a 90k flat day, you know, it's, it's carnage. <laughs> and, but it would also give the riders a little bit more time to being interactive with, uh, with their fans. Very good. No, no, I agree. And we've seen this, that the riders enjoyed, uh, like when they had Dubai tour and they stayed in one nice hotel and they could go out and ride for a couple of hours, come back, and, and they still had a couple of hours of the day uh, to do their social media and, and spend some time and go to the pool and stuff. I think it was, was a, nice, a nice experience. So they really had a good time uh, coming to Dubai. We just need a world tour all year when they... <laughs> Yes, very good. I have a few more questions to learn a bit more about, about yourself. So if you were stuck in an elevator for 30 minutes with three people, who would you wish these people would be? Anyone you would like to meet in your life? There's many, but I always keep forgetting the names. I always, you know, when you, when you watch something, a uh, documentary or something, uh, you, you, you think like, that's something somebody smart, you know. You want to sit down and uh, and discuss it further, or just getting their understanding of things. But if you ask me now, definitely no, not somebody. And if you could change your your one day of somebody else's life, if you could live their life for one day, is there someone you would like to be for one day? Not even that, probably some car drive or something, uh, swapping with Sebastian Loeb and just having yeah, having the skills of Sebastian Loeb in the car or something that as a rally driver, that, that would be something, you know, to do that without <laughs> risking your life or or knowing, literally knowing what you're doing. <laughs> Very good. Um, are there any things, any rules you learn from cycling which you've taken into your private life? So the organization skills and all these things, is this something you have you've taken over? And they, being such a good team player as well, is this something you feel uh, you, you practice now as well? 
I always believed in hard work. So hard work and brings the luck, you know, some people would say the opposite, but I think uh, for me, it's uh, in what you have earned fair and with hard work, I think that comes to you. And I think that's also what I always follow. It's like, you know, it's, uh, and also saying is like, if something sounds too good, you better run. <laughs> Are you collecting something? Are you, are you collecting your old bikes? Any trophies, anything or anything outside cycling, which, which we... Know. Shame not. I mean, I, I have all my jerseys from uh, all my leaders' jerseys and all the jerseys I rode over the years. So that's a, a good collection. And at the moment, I'm pretty much collecting all the, the paintings my kids are doing. And they are <laughs> so from 10 months to five years, but that's drawers full of paintings and you're not allowed to throw them away because if in made made a mistake that I send them down with the paper to the paper pen once and they found the paint uh, some drawings in there and they were like yes. emptying the pin <laughs> just to bring it back up so and you know they become really valuable when our daughter is now 22 and, and some of the letters and some of the paintings and some of the things they become really valuable uh, later on in life even more so yeah, just keep them. Get a place where you can store them. I think they're going to be they're going to be some great memories uh, you, you have. Yeah. Um, having the three kids, do you have any strange habits? Anything you wish you wouldn't have, or anything your family says? Okay, Bernie, stop this. Say anything. Yeah, Kev and my wife said I have to stop snoring. So Kev is not listening. <laughs> okay. Can't hear it anymore. <laughs> so. <laughs> Any tips for snoring? Yeah. What are you doing to, to stop it? Because my wife will obviously be very happy if she gets a, a good tip for that. They both hit me. So I remember the calf when, when it got too loud. They, uh, he hit me and my wife does the same. So it's just a <laughs> like, <laughs> victim. Yes. No, but otherwise, uh, definitely everybody has his bad habits. And it's just, I think it's a hard process to change uh, change yourself at a, at a certain point. Always trying, but I think in certain circumstances you will always fall back and will do the same thing. It's, it's, do you have anything on your bucket list you want to achieve? Uh, I had it back in the day when I was like, uh, I think 32, I was like, okay, I, I have everything I need and and now, uh, of course, I mean, with three kids and everything, you know, it just it just goes on. Things change, and you're like, okay, they should go to to school, good university. If they want to do sports, they do sports, and yes. just trying to be a good dad and just being there m more time than I I was when I was a pro. And but at the same time, I it's I know I will be traveling, and and it's we're used to it. We are, and that's also my bucket list traveling would be one part of it and okay. probably taking the kids out at some time from school and just going yes. to a different place in the world and just yes. discover that very good yeah, and you've seen the world you know the good places you know the good training grounds and the nice places to be uh, with cycling you get around quite a bit very nice yeah um i have a few sentences which if you like uh, i would like you to finish uh, the best day of my career was I have to say, I gained well again. Good. Yeah, that was a good win. Or probably, I also probably, the, I would also put uh, my first day in Mapai Quick Step in there. 
like going to the first training camp and that is really turning pro and i signed my contract there so and it's a great story because uh, i got a call from from the team owner and he's like so i have good and bad news for you the good news is you get a contract the bad news is that it was by 8 8 p.m in the evening and the bad news is you have to be in milan or outside milan tomorrow 9 9 a.m so it's like that's all manageable (laughs) and i'm but we when you enter the scene with uh yeah, likes like Bettini, Bartoli, and Bettini, yeah, like Freire. It's it's a different world, yeah. I think, that, I mean, looking at the teams you were riding, you, Mapai, at the beginning, this is unbelievable. This was the, the team, uh, uh, yeah, that was the number one team, yeah, and I think it was just unbelievable. And after the whole, um, the whole kit and everything, we made recently a Colnago, a couple of years back, we made a Colnago edition again with Mapai Colors. Which I thought was just something very, very special. Yeah, so that's a great, a great team to start. Definitely a dream. Yeah, it was very good. The hardest day of my career was. Hmm. I think uh, the mountain days, of course, they are hard. But I think it was more like when he. Uh, after a bad crash and oh it's I never really had a like one of those days when he when you when I wanted to give up only when I was 17 or something and my fork snapped and I smashed my face and repeated that two years ago so uh, second time it's you know already what's looking what's in front of you but back in the day I definitely when I was 17 and you just wake up and broken nose and missing a few teeth and bit your tongue in in pieces you know it's uh, kind of retired for five days then, but then i watched lance armstrong on tv it was just while while the tour de france mm-hmm. you I, I read as well and i heard that you had this accident where you had a hematoma in your head and that was quite severe and you had uh, a lot of headaches and everything and then they were kind of operating on your on your head and i think it, it changed quite a lot again Yes, uh, because at the beginning it was just headaches and there was a massive crash in Tirreno at Triatico when I hit the team car and landed. That's why the second crash two years ago when I landed on my face again. But I came out with it with a few stitches and I was like, that's cool. And was back on the bike, but then I got massive headaches. And even when there, I was diagnosed, it's called a subdural hematome. So it's yes. just a small bleeding. Every heartbeat, there's more blood coming into uh, and moves your brain. And it, I just realized later when I spoke to people who had the same uh, symptoms and they asked me how I'm doing and also asked advice because they knew I was back on the bike qu- quite quick. And I have to admit, I was super lucky because and even the doctors, they were like, mm-hmm. they could not believe that I was still walking around. I mean, I mean, we had team doctors, he's like, with that movement of his brain to one side, he, he must be walking in, in a circle because he can't go straight. So it's like, and it was also when, when there's a, there's like, are you missing words or something? And, but I was all just saying to my wife, probably should speak a little bit more at home again, because then I would probably have realized before. Yes, yes, yes. yes. You know, we had a similar situation with my father-in-law and he had hit his head and over, over some days and he lost a speech. And, and it was obviously a big surprise and nobody really knew. And then they go to the hospital and they found this and they released it. 
and within minutes it was back and it was just like a miracle really and and i, I can when i was reading about it i could really relate to this because i if somebody would have told me and i wouldn't have seen it i wouldn't have believed that but that was just a an unbelievable recovery how our brain then when, when there's enough room again to expand and uh, how it worked again so yeah you're right you're really really lucky with that yeah no i was lucky i mean still feel some some days and definitely also stop wouldn't say stop my career but uh it was also a, a risk behind it and teams were also like a bit more cautious than if how i would come back and stuff and how the future would look like so but um for the riding i'm doing right now once a month it's good enough okay so is it is it really so much less now once a month so the, how, how is the riding how is it going for you now I have to be honest, I, since I retired, I've rode my bike once outside for 60 kilometers in Belgium and twice on Swift. So <laughs> it's, it's, I miss it, but there's just work and uh, just enjoying the time with the, with the family and something. And I, I'm a lot in the, with the mountain bike with the, the boy in the, in the, or the, the kids in the, in the forest, but that's a different speed. So it's definitely not the, the racing or, the training ride and you feel it's hard now getting back on the bike and obviously trying to to keep up with with the boys you were trashing before and now they pay back or how is this going uh i, I think uh, when i have to do my first real ride again i mean we also have here a, a junior or like a youth uh youth team and i think with the kids with 13 14 i wouldn't race with them uphill anymore because i think I, I can't can't match them at the moment, and but the good thing is like normally the form comes back quickly, but I'm not even planning on that. It's just for me, it's all uh, enjoyable. Very good, fantastic. But I also always said it's like everything above two hours is work. So. <laughs> no, that's true. That's true. If you ever come to Dubai, you should join us on our on our ride. That's that's a nice flat ride, and and, and it's quite social as well. Very good. Um, I have a few quick questions as well for you. If you if you have socks, are they long or short? Long, 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 long and black. If it matches with the bike in the kit. <laughs> the best roommate you had? Uh, I think it's Kev. I mean, because all over the years, and uh, because we we always were roommates, and uh, we we just knew each other, and uh, we we could ignore each other. So it was like having a single room. And when we needed to chat, we chatted and we just know all our all little habits in the morning and everything. So that was easy going then. In racing, you used the power meter or you raced mostly by the field or you have you were a number driven person? Uh, I raced with uh, on power meter on certain aspects, but I have no idea about numbers. I if somebody asked me about because everybody talks about FTP and something. Mm -hmm. I can calculate watts per kilogram and then I get an understanding how much you have to write to, to be up there with Chris Froome and other people and how much you have to produce to win a sprint. But the rest, I have no idea about uh, numbers. <laughs> and, but with riding with Kev in, in the mountains, you always have to use like a power meter. Because then you, I knew with that kind of watts, we are safe in time. And I would not kill him for the next days in the, in, in, in the mountains or in the sprint. 
So, so what are the numbers? Can you can you re reveal the numbers? Where, where is he suffering? Uh, I mean, it's different for him, but for me, it was I was I would write then only 280, 320 watts, but it's like on a, a constant constant pace and over many hours, and that's mostly on the climb. On the on the flat, I would write much more, and he would stay on the wheel then. But it's the same with all sprinters, you know. If you if you can calculate or bring back a breakaway, you know how much you have to write. It's, a, yes. it's also not a, a miracle number to bring a breakaway back. You, you just have to calculate. If, even if you lose time at the beginning, you know they can't hold that pace for for the whole for the whole time of the stage. You still shaving your legs? I did, yes, I, I did for my second Swift ride. I was like, better shave my legs, even if they can't see it. But now it, it, it is just uh, when you when you look down it, and you used to have shaved legs, it's you, you, I can't look down on bib shorts and there's hair everywhere, so that doesn't work. Now. <laughs> okay, I'm glad. Okay, um, if you write a book about your career, what's going to be the title? Uh. How can you do it with the least effort? <laughs> <laughs> Very good. I, I should ask you for my wife. If you go for, would you go for Sacha Torte or Tiramisu? Oh, that's a tricky one. Uh, yeah, let's be Tiramisu in Italy and Sacha Torte in Austria. Oh, Sacha Torte ship to Dubai. <laughs> they do that too. <laughs> Very good. Um, if you go to karaoke bar, which song you're going to sing? I can't sing. I would never sing. <laughs> like, there's not enough alcohol out there to hear me sing. <laughs> Very good. Fantastic. Um, and the last one is, do you have a favorite quote you live by or which inspires you? Um, no. I, I think I, I read a good one is... It was not a quote, it was in a book. It says that our kids are the windows to the world because they show us the world in a different way. And I think that uh, that stroked me because they have a different view on things. And we mm. are always just having that, what we have seen over the past and we're just trying to repeat that. And they just see different, they see different stuff. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. No, this is true. Yeah, and I think it's good. Obviously, you have three, uh, three options to see the world now with, with the three <laughs> kids, and I think it's good. And I think being aware about it to to recognize it that they see it different and, and take this in and um, uh, be open for that view. I think it's it's interesting. And I have to agree. I, we have a, a twenty-year-old daughter, um, and and she really helps us to see the world different. And even in the company where we're working, obviously there's there's three generations. Um, me almost being fifty, then people forty, thirty, twenty. And it's interesting how they how they grew up differently, and I, I really appreciate this, and, and I learn a lot from them. So it's, it's quite nice. So I think you're going to have a good time. I think especially if the kids get older, there's every time there's something something very special you can you can take from them. Looking forward to it, definitely. Okay. Uh, one more question is: if you if you could spend one day with a person dead or alive, is there anyone you feel like is is interesting? Huh. <sighs> I read quite a lot back in the day. It's like less now with the kids. There's not much time. But when I read 
like Dormas Mann or something like some mm. and really intellectual and like these guys and he wrote this book on himself and now when you have like a, a famous writer now he has probably like 30 guys doing all the research for him and and working behind the scenes to bring out the book every year and when you see that these guys wrote this book over all those years and that knowledge they they had and how they look at the world i think it would it would be one of like somebody like thomas Mann, and just oh, being good. shown how little you actually know <laughs> mm -hmm. see honestly i have to say when i'm getting older i feel I'm, I'm learning more and more and i'm seeing how how little I'm, i know and and i'm always fascinated about everything that's what my what my family says oh you you think everything is amazing uh, and you learn, and I think this is this is one of the benefits of getting a little older that you appreciate this even more, um, and and this is as well why I enjoy these talks so much because I think everyone has a great story, uh, and I thank you so much for for sharing your story with us, and it was really good to make the research, and Google was actually very helpful to to see. Obviously, I followed you through your career, um, seeing all the rides, and it was really inspiring for my personal development as as a cyclist and at the cycling store in Dubai. So. I think sometimes it's maybe you don't realize how much of influence all the, the pro peloton has on all the cyclists in the world. So I think you did really an amazing job and I really want to acknowledge you for that, what you did in your career. Thank you. Really, thanks for the kind words and hopefully see you at some point in Dubai and uh, also stay safe, everyone, and all to the viewers and listeners. Like, look after yourself. Most important at the moment, I think. And enjoy riding your bike. Yes, thank you so much, Bernie. And I hope you come to Dubai um, for, for the next tour, maybe as a commentator for the event. And, and yeah, let's let's go out for, for a drink or dinner. That would be nice. Uh, and also Expo is coming, you know? Expo yeah. 2021, yeah. no? They, so. they delayed the Expo, yes. But it will oh, come, okay. sure. Yeah, it's quite impressive. It's really, really impressive what Dubai uh, has put up there. And, and I think it's going to be an amazing show, yeah? And it would be maybe nice to come with your kids and hopefully travel will be easier than fantastic. Thank you, guys. Have a good day, though. Yeah. Next week, we have our next guest in the show is uh, world champion Ironman uh, Sebastian Kinle. That's on Wednesday. So if, you, if you're keen to join, uh, to watch us and to everyone listening, uh, we're looking forward to see you there. Thank you, Bernie. Have a good evening. Thanks for your time. All right. Bye.